Hello, Regency Rumors listeners. I bet you are surprised to get a recap of Season 2, Episode 8 today. However, I wanted to do a small update before the beginning of this episode, before we dive right in, because Jordan and I recorded this episode, oh goodness, a good six or seven months ago, I'll be honest with you. Everything in this episode, I think bar the beginning, is very just applicable to the recap. So don't worry about that. It will um, be very applicable, our, our recommendations of things to watch and the history moment and going through the episode, that sort of thing. But I just wanted to let people know that we did record it a good while back. However, uh, as many of you listeners know, I have been doing a PhD in, funnily enough, podcasting and heritage. And I am excited to say that I have past my PhD, so now I am Dr. Kayla, which is still really strange to say, but very exciting. The podcast that I was working on during the PhD and just my PhD work in general was really overwhelming. And so I got to a point where it was tough for us to balance uh, other things there at the end of the PhD. So unfortunately, um, fun things like the podcast went on the back burner. But I just wanted to say thank you to everyone that continues to support the podcast and listen, even though we haven't been very consistent in the past. Uh, When we started Regency Rumors, it kind of came out of us being in lockdown and it being a scary time and us only having each other for company. And there was this new fun show that had come out that was based in the Regency period, which was something that I have always had a passion for. You know, all those days in in lockdown where we weren't able to go anywhere else, um, this was a great comfort. It was a way that we were able to connect with one another and to share kind of common themes throughout Bridgerton and what people were thinking about the new show and gossip that was coming out with period dramas and that sort of thing. We didn't really know where this podcast would go. And because of my PhD, um, it didn't have the traditional trajectory that a lot of podcasts have where um, people start them and then they're very consistent and it's every week or, you know, a couple times a week, that sort of thing. You know, we, we have struggled to get the podcast off the ground. Really, it's just been something that we've enjoyed doing and that we're thankful that we have a listenership at all. And I was listening through today um of this episode doing some editing of it and I was going oh you know this is so fun we really do enjoy sitting down and talking about the the themes that we find in Bridgerton and the history moments that we've explored and it's something that we've really loved doing so if you guys are still interested we still want to do it I will be honest and say to you that um I'm not sure how the podcast is going to look in the future We're well aware that in order for something like this to be successful, you have to be consistent, and we want to be able to do that in the future. It just might mean condensing things down a bit. We might not do as many episodes. We're not really sure what that's going to look like. Um, Our plan is to get some episodes out on uh, Queen Charlotte when that finally comes out in May, I think, the Bridgerton spinoff. It may not look the same as it's looked now, but we're really interested in kind of keeping something in the same vein going where we can still explore these history moments of Bridgerton and the relationships between the new couples that change every season. We're really enjoying 
the differences between kind of British culture and American culture and uh, period dramas and classic books, having all those kinds of conversations are really fun and important for, for people who are interested in reading and like writing like we are, and hopefully interesting um, to you guys who all listen to the podcast. So yeah, if you are at all still interested in the podcast, we'd love for you to keep on uh, listening and to watch this space, as they say here in the UK, because um, some fun things are going to be coming. We're just not 100% sure what yet. I would join our Facebook group, or if you're already in there, um, just keep an eye out. It is www.facebook.com groups slash Regency Rumors with a U, as Jordan would say. So yeah, look out for us there. And on to the final episode of season two, episode eight. You've all waited long enough. Thank you for being our listeners. And here we go. Welcome listeners, one and all. Welcome to Regency Rumours, the podcast where a British-American couple recap and discuss Bridgerton, the Regency Netflix show. I'm Jordan. And I'm Kayla. And we're obviously way behind on finishing this show. But you know what? If we were finished... We couldn't talk about a lot of the juicy drama that's coming out about Bridgerton when the season's over. So you're welcome. It was intentional. Yes. <laughs> so we got a lot of um, really cool stuff this episode. I'm really excited about the history moment today. And we do have some juicy like drama news about Bridgerton, which is rare. So we're just going to dive straight in. If you're new to the podcast, what we typically do is... I talk about some period drama news, and then we briefly recap the episode, and then we talk about some main moments in the show and what we thought of the episode, and then we dive into a history moment, which has to do with an area of history related to Bridgerton. So if there's a topic that we talk about in Bridgerton or that we've seen, then we go on and talk about what the history is behind that. So this episode is episode eight, The Viscount Who Loved Me, which is the title of one of Julia Quinn's novels. Obviously the inspiration for the Bridgerton series. That is the title of the novel that has to do with Anthony and Kate. So I think the same happened with the first for the first season, the the Duke and the Duke I. And one I. of the one of the episodes was named the the name of the book. So it'll be interesting. It'll. I'm wondering if they'll do that for the third season with Penelope and Colin. So, so we got some juicy, juicy news. I don't know if anybody followed this. I think possibly some people in the in the Facebook group that we have have talked about it before. We do have a Facebook group. It is facebook.com/groups/regency/rumors with a U with a U, if you would like to join. Um, people just kind of share some of the merchandise they get or if they get if they know any period drama news. And then I will share like updates about the podcast on there if you would like to join. So yeah, I, I think we've briefly talked about it on the Facebook group, maybe, or I've seen it in other Facebooks, Facebook groups. When Bridgerton first came out, there was a musical an unofficial musical that went around on TikTok. So two girls named Abigail Barlow and Emily Bear made kind of clips during lockdown 
to do with Bridgerton. So they made catchy music to go with parts of the show and these TikTok clips became hugely popular. I've only seen like one or two of them, but they they genuinely do sound like a, a musical that you could see on Broadway today. Mm. So it is really impressive, um, the songs that they've written for it. And the songs actually ended up winning at the 2022 Grammy Awards for Best Musical Album. So it's like, it's a big deal. They it's, won a Grammy. They won a Grammy. So it wasn't just that they were kind of playing around on TikTok and they just were huge fans of the show. This resulted in them winning a Grammy. So it's quite a big deal. When it first happened, it was getting a lot of traction and the show had just come out and it was wildly popular on Netflix. And so the Bridgerton creators and Netflix were really vocal and supportive about the two um, women who made these different songs. That, of course, started to change because they decided to make a show. Um, and Wait, who's, who's making a show? Sorry, like a theatrical show. So the two of them, the two creators of this Bridgerton music, they decided to make an unofficial Broadway musical. So it went beyond them creating music for tiktok and to them selling tickets at like what's well, just stupid well here we go so on july 26 the duo staged a sold-out performance at the kennedy center in new york city featuring the national symphony orchestra uh and a collection of broadway guest stars so the tickets range from 29 dollars to 149 um, plus VIP upgrades. Uh, so they tried to get away with it saying that it was an unofficial one, that it wasn't related to Bridgerton at all, which clearly it wasn't affiliated with Bridgerton, but it was very much related to Bridgerton. Um, so when they started making money, like serious money off of this, Netflix put their foot down um, after repeated objections and demanded that they end these for-profit uh, performances. Yes. Like, duh. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I. Mm. I mean, yeah. And it, it wasn't, if you listen to the music, it wasn't just that they were making music that had to do with some of the scenes. They were taking literal dialogue from the show and putting it in the music. So you couldn't just say that they were making fun parody because sometimes people get away with making parody music to do with television shows and well, that's course, completely fine. That's within free use. Yeah. But they were taking like large chunks of dialogue and creating music out it's of just it. Straight up stealing IP. I really like Emily D. Baker, who's a YouTube uh, legal analyst, and she has talked about it. If you want to check it out on her YouTube channel, um, she's done a couple of live streams about it, and she she goes through um, the paperwork that Netflix did to sue these two creators um, and kind of explains exactly what's in the lawsuit, which I think is really cool. But she said that she thinks what the end result will be for something like this is that they'll that Netflix and these two girls will end up teaming up together. She said a lot of times when this kind of thing happens and the the larger of the two, so Netflix, 
they have to, of course, send this kind of cease and desist letter like, you need, yes. you need to stop. This is our intellectual property. And Shonda Rhimes came out and then Julia Quinn also came out and they were like, we're huge fans of you creating this as as fans of the show, but you can't be making a profit off of it, which it just makes absolutely no sense that they wouldn't know that from the very beginning. It seems like if you start making Grammys off of something like this, you know you're in hot water territory. You should you should approach, already have a lawyer. Yeah, approach Netflix and say, hey, we've managed to get insanely popular mm. with this music. We're looking to make a Broadway play, mm. um, musical, you know, whatever they call them. Um, and we want to collaborate with you. Can we purchase the rights? Can we collaborate? Can we X, Y, Z? Something. Because that way everybody wins. Netflix doesn't get annoyed and then send mm. its lawyers after you. Mm. And then you don't steal the intellectual property of another creator. I mean... It, mm. Mm. it seems like they were trying to get away with it as long as possible. And I think because they had created it... This is just my opinion. I think because they had created it on TikTok and... Netflix was originally they were promoting it they they were tagging them like they they were pushing them creating it I think they were like well we can ride this wave as long as possible because Netflix is promoting this yeah, but and it doesn't is matter promoting the social media posts on TikTok yeah. which you already as soon as you put something on TikTok you're already giving up your um copyright to it because you have to in order for TikTok to be able to publish it mm. so they they aren't able to do anything with that, right? That's all fair use parody, whatever you want to call it. And then, of course, Netflix are going to promote it because it's just free pub pub publicity for the show. But then everybody, I mean, I assumed everybody knows that as soon as you try and make money off something, that's when it's a big no-no. I mean, the whole point of copyright law in the States in particular is that if you don't defend it, then you, you lose it. Yeah. I mean, that's just 101, mm. you know? Yeah, I, I don't know what will come of this, but I think I think Emily D. Pager is probably right. She says that, look, Netflix can, is seeing how much they can make money off of this. So they they will try and come to an agreement where all parties can make money because it would be a huge lot, loss for Netflix to not try and work it out in some way with these girls because it also gives them negative press if e even though the women were in the wrong for doing that because of the world we live in and because of how much money um huge corporations like netflix can make it still can negatively impact them in the media and so she's saying that look if all parties can make money Netflix is, is in the business of making money, so why not make money? So she thinks that they'll end up settling in some way and then going on to to officially bring them into the fold somehow because it, musicals can be big money, and we're, we're seeing it all the time. They're, they're doing musicals for everything, from Mean Girls, Shrek, The Addams Family, mm. um, and so why not Bridgerton? I could I could see it happening. Uh, it's, it just boggles the mind that they didn't already think that that was something they had to do. It's just... I don't. I don't know. I think because of social media like TikTok, people perceive those things to be really loose. Like, oh, we're we're all singing songs together and we're all sharing funny clips that then we can parody and stuff, and nobody's coming after us. And the reality is that 
people can come after you. You can't just create whatever you want. You have to do things in a specific way. But the average person doesn't have legal knowledge to to know that. I think I I was watching a, a YouTuber the other day who has uploaded a few of her videos that she made a couple years ago, and she's had to re-upload them because she didn't wasn't up on the kind of lingo she she was like I, I need to say things like allegedly if I don't have facts people can come after me for these sorts of things I I have to sometimes change clips in certain ways if I want to include them or I can't just put huge chunks of clips in and most people think that because they watch YouTube and TikTok and they see other people kind of stitching in music and stuff but they don't they don't know how long you can play a clip or whatever, that they just think it's free reign, and it's yeah. not. You you can't just do whatever. There are specific rules and laws around what you can produce, how long you can produce music. It, yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting because similar-ish things were happening on, happening on Twitch mm. where there would be people hosting watch parties and they would watch, like, yeah. anime or whatever with thousands of people, and then they got shut down hard because you need a license to do that, you know? Yeah. I mean, so here in the UK, you can't even play TV, like free TV, in a pub mm. or other like public est- establishment without a specific license for um, entertainment. And it was always something that we would always laugh at whenever you'd watch a video or a DVD when you were younger because it always starts with that page or whatever at the beginning and saying you cannot show this to more than 15 people in a school, prison, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you always looked at it and going, but I'm watching this at home. Like, why Why is that there? Mm. Because as a kid, you didn't really think about it. But then sure enough, you'd go to school sometimes and they'd be like, right, we're watching a video today because it was like the last class of, of term or something. Yeah. And then that thing would come up and they'd have to like fast forward past it kind of thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, you, you just... Those FBI warnings that you used to have before you you didn't well, have that, we but, didn't do FBI, but, but yeah. we used to have FBI warnings at the beginning of like VHSs and stuff. So yeah, it, it's it's interesting, but there are clear rules around these sorts of things. And as we've seen with this, and then as we've seen recently with the Hamilton music, there was a church that tried to replicate Hamilton and change, keep the music, but change everything not everything, but change the overall message and then change a lot of the more racy lyrics uh, in it. And they did not get a license to put on this production of Hamilton. And they they ended up getting away with one performance because no one had put it out online. And then someone had recorded portions of the performance. And yeah, they were not able to do any more after that. So because they settled. Uh, yeah, of course they did. Um as well, though, it changes as soon as you record it. Well, then you're just putting the music online. Because mm-hmm. if you if you haven't changed the music, that is still their music. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so it, um, if you're thinking of putting on your own Bridgerton musical, then... Don't. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, into the episode eight recap. We're at the end. We're at the finish line. It's happening. And I've already forgotten what happened in this episode. So, that's why we do a brief recap. So... <laughs> In a very Colonel Brandon way from Sense and Sensibility, Anthony bursts into Lady Danbury's house with an incapacitated Kate screaming for a surgeon. Upset and mad, Anthony stays away from Kate once he has rescued her and instead decides to be snappy with the rest of his family. Relatable. 
(laughs) Over to Eloise, her romance with Theo cooled off before it ever got the chance to sizzle when he tries to get close to her, but she shies away from him, seeming far more passionate about her search for Lady Whistledown than her interest in him. He sees that she's hesitant and the two separate without us knowing of their fate. So the long lost relative, now we're going over to the Featheringtons, the long-lost relative of theirs, Jack, has turned into far too close of a relative for the Featheringtons, him now getting all up in their business, trying to scheme everyone in London out of their money, including Colin. Colin's had a a rough time of it, but I hope it's going to be worth it in the end. So Jack celebrates scheming by trying to kiss Lady Featherington and hints around that the two should just run away together with their money to America. And to that I say, hit the road. Jack. Speaking of stealing music, we can't put that in, but never mind. <laughs> Hit the road, Jack. I, I never completely figured out exactly how this Jack guy relates to the family, but I'm assuming he's not actually actually related to Lady Featherington, but it's still weird, yeah, that he whole... Was, he was their... He was father's the father's cousin? Something. It was weird. It so, was weird. So uh, he's technically not a blood relation to her because yeah, she married in. Okay. But it's still a bit it, skeezy. Yeah, yeah. So back to Kate and Anthony. So Kate finally wakes up and looks like the most radiant person to ever be in a coma, complete with flawless hair, skin, and makeup. And the first thing that she thinks about is Anthony, obviously. So Violet goes to Anthony to tell him that Kate is awake. And in a moment of true vulnerability, finally, he breaks down into tears in front of his mother. Violet tells him essentially to go for Kate because despite her own husband dying, it was all worth it. You cannot lose her, she pleads with her stubborn son. Anthony finally takes a true leap of faith for himself and asks Kate to marry him, but she refuses. She feels as if he thinks he owes her. For them doing the Vodio Dodo the other night. <laughs> <laughs> the, the what? The, the Vodio Dodo. Oh, it. there was a show called Laverne and Shirley, and I loved yeah, it growing up. I know up. of it. Yeah. And they, one of the characters was uncomfortable with talking about sex, so she would say the Vodio Dodo. <laughs> <laughs> was it always Dodo? I don't know, but I just always thought it was funny, so I use that sometimes. <laughs> so all of us know better about anthony wanting to marry kate he he really wants to he really wants to marry her but she tells him she's moving to india despite what's happening between him and then he says she's just running away because these two are the same and they're exhausting together stubborn kate and edwina finally make up justice for edwina over at the bridgertons anthony is staring at a painting of his father edmund when young gregory asks him about his father The two have a bonding conversation about their father, and Violet listens at the door, hopeful for Anthony to move emotionally from the move on emotionally from the trauma of his father's death. Now, the moment we've all been waiting for the ball. And can I just say there wasn't enough balls in this season? (laughs) Well, out on the dance floor, Colin and Penelope dance, and he tells her, You've always been special to me. Which poor Penelope, she's been friend zoned at the highest degree uh and you know you've been friend zoned if someone says that you're special to me kate and anthony dance their final dance before she goes off to india yeah right that (laughs) (laughs) that eye moment between anthony and kate happens and we know that they know that we know that they know 
that they love each other. If only they would just tell each other already. But then the episode would be over. Yeah. In a moment of utter redemption, Lady Featherington sends Jack packing and chooses her daughters instead. Amazing moment. Such a good transition, transformation for this character. Love that moment. Eloise finds out that Penelope is Lady Whistledown and has top-tier meltdown. Uh, which is fair, but it leaves their friendship in the balance. Penelope overhears Colin tell a group of guys that he'd never court her in a million years. He's on such a thin thread with me right now. I don't even know if I want her with him because he's done this to her. And we all know I, Penelope is all that matters to me in this show. So after all this back and forth, Anthony and Kate finally declare their love for one another and decide to get married. In perfect timing, Firework explodes behind them as they mack it out. Don't know. Mack it out, really? <laughs> yeah, they mack it on each other. Oh, it's as bad as <laughs> snogging. After having hot married sex sometime later, <laughs> the series ends with the two joining everyone downstairs for a game of Pall Mall. Initial reactions <laughs> to the episode. You wrote nothing. I forgot to write notes. Oh, good. Oh, However, good. what I what I wanted to kind of pick up on first um, was the Lady Featherington and Jack cousin Jack thing, mm. which, as you said, amazing transformation for this character. The whole time that this is happening, we're kind of going, "Oh, this is the antagonist." Oh, like you know, we don't. We don't like her. She's awful. Blah, 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 blah. And there are certain things that she does and the way that they're written and things, it it does make her, you know, villainous, mm. I guess, in like a very juvenile sense of the word. And I think this moment is when you go, oh, finally, we have that true depth mm. of character. As we said right at the start of this season, season two has been fantastic for because, again, with character development, Anthony and his mother talking about his father, when we actually see his true responses to things, amazing development. Because in season one, we all know what he was like. He was just a cad. And then he's been so stubborn throughout this season that it was truly kind of a breath of fresh air to have that moment for both of these characters. The the risk is always that a character's going to get shoehorned in a particular type, archetype or whatever, and then both of them broke out of it, mm. which was really good. I didn't mind the episode. I thought it was it was fairly good. Um I know that you've said before that you thought that perhaps the second half of the season was a bit long, kind of went on a bit too much. I so think how so. did you feel about this episode? I mean, I think this episode wrapped up well. I think I think between episode six and seven, that could have been one episode. I, I think it got drawn out, but it needed this episode to pull everything together. I think it was a fitting in to Anthony and Kate's love story. I think they... Beginning. Beginning to their love story. The beginning. That last scene where he says to her... Oh, I forgot what he says to her. But he, he says to her, like, how much he 
he loves her and he like puts his hand on his heart and he says, I love you. You know, like it's it's a sincere place for him. It's not just I'm super attracted to this woman. Therefore, I want to marry someone. It's literally I am in love with this person. The the type of person I was before this doesn't even apply to me now because I want to make a life with this person. And so that is a really cool thing to watch in this character. I like the drama from the other characters as well. I think it really set up Penelope and Collins season well. That that last episode of him saying he would never court her in a million years, that is putting the final nail in the coffin, I think, in, in terms of like, I think we will open up to a Penelope who needed to hear that because that's going to allow her to move on and transform. If she didn't hear that those words from him and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he would never court her, she wouldn't move on and, and have the transformation that she needs to have to be the amazing Lady Whistledown and feel that within herself. Hmm. And I think we're going to see a much more confident Penelope in the upcoming season, and he's going to watch her from the sidelines. I think that that's a really interesting point, though, because... Penelope is such an interesting character, and I agree. I think everything everything in this show revolves around that character. Mm. Um, and I think that, that dichotomy between this nervous, really unwilling to push and be strong Penelope mm. is so very different from this Lady Whistledown mm. that it's really interesting to see both of them in one character. And it isn't... And I think that's why we get so blindsided by it Mm. because it's just like, wait, this character of all the characters. Yeah. And that's why Eloise doesn't think it. That's how Penelope can go undetected for so long because she has adopted this persona of being this little wallflower that's Mm. so delicate. You can't touch it, all that kind of stuff. And then (laughs) is hiding this sharp intellect. Because she does, she hides it. Because it's, a businesswoman as well. Exactly. And then when we see her, I, I don't think it was this episode, was it? It was earlier in the season. We see her going to pick up the papers on behalf of her mistress. Mm. And that there was a brilliant turn of character. Yeah, I loved seeing her that way. I think she's the most interesting character in the show. And l- like I said, I, I think that we can't go into a new season with her still pining over him. It won't work. The The power dynamic between the two has to change. He has to chase her. Yeah. He has to He has to want her. Yeah. Um, and she has to be like, I've got stuff going on. Yeah. I'm too. And I think that's the only way that he'll kind of see her in a different light and won't see her as this wallflower, as you said. Um, and so I'm excited for her, her transformation. But this has set it up really good. She needed... as. Hard as it was to watch him say those things, I was like, so heartbroken for her. She had to hear them because we can't have her pining more. It, we're we're bored of it at, in some ways, but also it just shows her as so weak and vulnerable and sad. And that's not main character material. Nope. Not nope, for this show. Not for this one. Yeah. So I'm I'm really excited about that. So some of the the main moments here. Both Kate and Anthony were affected by the loss of their fathers, which shaped their love lives. How do we think they've changed as characters from the beginning of the series? For Anthony, it was a case of, in season one, he 
was shirking his duty mm. because he didn't feel ready to take it up yet. And then after everything that happened with the Lady of the Night from the first season, I forget her name. It was like Marion or... I thought it was like Sierra or something. C- yeah. C- Sienna? Sienna? Yeah. Maybe something like that. Sienna. So everything with ha- that happened with that character then shocked him out of the situation that he was in. And then he was like, he went 100% into duty mode, which then well, that wasn't appropriate either. Mm. You know, complete CAD or complete stick in the mouth. You're right. He He... Lives in these extremes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Vulnerability would have allowed him to fall in love with someone and to think about him himself. Yeah, I see what you mean. But- like, I, I think he does think about himself, but that's, I think that's a part of why um, Daphne is a bit instrumental in this is because the chats that she has about him, I mean, with him, she's she's basically saying to him, you doing this dutiful thing, really, to me, it's lip service because the rest of us just pity you. Just find a woman you love. Like, chill out. You know, no one's asking you to pick some person you don't like. No one's pushing you to get married before you want to get married. You know, I, I think but, she's really instrumental in being mm-hmm. like, if you feel like you've got duty, fine, but we we just want you to find love. And she can see through the fact that it's not really all about duty for him it's he almost wants to punish himself in a way i'm not sure about punishment i think i think you're right though in the terms of the vulnerability he's scared Mm. so he's hiding behind the duty to the family and i think Mm. the difficult thing with that with what you were just saying in terms of nobody thinks you've got duty well that's not true because he thinks it and then his father did right and the legacy of the family all rests upon him and so that's a societal pressure but it is still a real pressure, you know, in that time period. He he did have to think of those things. So I, I I think that it was fine for him to think that in some cases. I think what what she was saying in terms of just find someone for love, to him, would have been too... It was terrifying because of his father and, and, mm. and the mother. And like he said, I don't want to ever put someone through what you went through. And then she was like, well... You're not going to unless you actually like live first and you yeah. need to live. And that that was where he was being stubborn in my eyes. But, you know? but to me, the unfair thing is like I'm I'm willing to put someone I don't love through that. And yeah, you're right. Yeah. Well, in a, in a lot of ways, like loving someone is is infinitely better. But. Back then, when marriage was so important for women for survival, loss is loss. So if he marries anyone and then has children with them and leaves that family on their own, like it it matters very little if he loved them because he's created children and a woman who's dependent on him who then has lost him and and feels, feels that gap of him being gone. So it's... He can't win in this situation one way or the other. He's got to live. You know, he's just barricaded himself in. And if he might as well find someone that he loves because loss is inevitable, but also he could live a long and healthy life and not have the same situation that his parents did. So it's worth the risk. So I wanted to just point out 
Lady Featherington because you'd you'd mentioned that before that um how cool it was for this character to have a bit of redemption. And when you're talking about it, one of the big things that I love about Bridgerton is that it promotes powerful and level-headed older women and period dramas in general do not like to do that. Um, mm. If you think of um, any number of Jane Austen, to be honest with you, so Pride and Prejudice, um, Miss Bennett or Mansfield Park, any of the older women in, in Mansfield Park, um, wives and daughters, the older women in that, there's these characters can often be kind of vilified. They're either silly or they're too stern um, mm. or they're conniving and they there's not a lot of nuance in these characters at all and bridgerton is one of the rare exceptions to me in in a lot of romantic period dramas at least where these older female characters you root for them so like violet and lady danbury you're like oh they're so cool like they're caring and loving, but level-headed. Violet's a very level-headed character. She's not a silly mother at all. And you don't see that a lot. You see these, like, you know, even that stretches as far out as to, like, children's television or teen television animated series where the parents are dumb. And this that, mm. doesn't embrace that. It It says, you know, these women are complicated they've been through things and lady featherington is kind of that representation of that silly conniving woman like they do have her in there but this moment shows that she has layers to her so that not like even ogre. sorry like an, ogre. like an ogre even the evil character has layers and can be redeemed and i love that i yeah. think that's so good it is it's not vilifying all older women it's going these women are complicated like anyone's complicated this woman particularly has her problems but in the end she chooses her children and she chooses to have some respect for herself and yeah. you're like cool yeah because so a couple of things from what you were saying i think the one of the difficulties of adaptations of these novels is the novel was still relatively new mm. when they were being written. The form, character archetypes were still being developed. And so a stereotype or a an exaggeration of a character was much more common. You know, if we, if we take, I forget the character's name, but from Emma. the Miss one, Bates. Yeah, okay. Take that kind of character as an example. There, there's a few examples of characters like that where you go, they're 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 performing a function they're not real they're not not a, they're not a person are they they are a character um because they rely on that character trait and i think that is one of the weaknesses but then when you adapt it to the to the screen you've then got to kind of take that into account do you play on that and really ham it up and make it obvious that that's what it is and it's like it's a bit of a satirical take on that type of character trait or do you then dial it back a little bit, add some nuance and things? And I think what I'm really grateful that they did here is, like you say, show the layers. Because otherwise it would have been a little bit stereotypical and it would have been not as satisfying. Mm. As with anything, any kind of fiction, you do have to have those layers and they're so important. When we don't see those, that's when people kind of 
look at something and go, yeah, it's a bit flat. It was one-dimensional. It was boring. I mean, all of those descriptors mm-hmm. that you'll hear in any review of anything is because the characters don't have layers and they're just all one thing. Yeah. They don't change. So. Yeah. yeah. And showing women like this, it's it's a way it's a way to show too sometimes that even in their bad moments, their motivations were for good reasons. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think now that I'm older, I I can sometimes see Miss Bennett in a different light because she was the only person in the family who was concerned about getting these women married, which was important for them to have any sort of stability. It was important because they had five daughters in the house and they need to get married and the house is going to go to a male. And the dad's kind of sitting around being like, Eh, you know, and nowadays it makes that makes sense. That's a modern thing for, you know, maybe a, a mother to want her daughter to get married and the dad to be like, eh, you can do what. But, but back then there was so much importance to survival for it. And so I see these characters in a more nuanced way. And that I feel that way about Lady Featherington, you know, her losing her entire fortune and then scheming to try and get it back in some way and get her daughter married and putting her daughter in compromising situations to get her married off like yes those things are evil they do show us that she she ultimately loves her daughters and yeah. she is doing those things for them which is not it's not right that she's doing them but it shows some nuance to these characters yeah and it it goes back to that kind of writer's adage which is um every every character is the hero of their own story yes every good villain believes that they are doing the right thing absolutely those are the best villains and i'm not saying that featherington is the villain necessarily except that that family is often situated as an antagonist to the bridgertons or at least a foil where the Bridgertons look better because of the way the Featheringtons are doing things. Well, and I mean, she's... Or she's, vice versa. She's the ultimate um, Cinderella evil step stepmother. That's, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's... Uh, it's an evil character, but it's also a fun character. You need that character in order for the main character to succeed. So, but yeah. she's not evil, though. No. Because yeah. that's, that's the point. Yeah, like, right. Because really, no character should ever be evil just for evil's sake. Because yeah. that's one-dimensional and it's boring. Mm. Um. So there's a lot that you could go into there with with that, so we won't. (laughs) So our next main moment, what is it with the men in these uh, shows just saying hurtful things willy-nilly and the women being able to hear them (laughs) and they're not, like, actually, you know, taking a quick look around before they say it? Like, how stupid can you be? Um, So how do we think that the information about Colin saying that he's never caught Penelope going to affect the actions that she takes in the first few episodes we've already talked about generally what it needs to do but what do you think that she's going to do especially now that her friendship with eloise has been fractured yeah i don't i don't know what she's going to do i think the hard part with a character like this is because she's not a man exactly the same thing she has been doing which is staying at home wearing the dresses that her mother's telling her to wear. So I, I don't know what they're going to do. I'm really interested to see because she's going to have to have some sort of power between the two of them, some way that she's being celebrated or other men are interested in her or something. There has to be some sort of power dynamic change between the two of them 
in order for him to see her in a different way. But I don't know what I don't know what that is because it's not as if she's a a man who can then go and win a fortune in in some way or become a war hero or you know I don't know. What do you think that they're going to do with Whistledown? Are they going to reveal that? Will that be the power shift? I don't want to reveal anything in the books because if some people haven't read the books yet. I don't I don't know whether they'll split from the books. I won't say one way or the other. Um I I don't know whether they'll split from the books and decide to do something completely different. I don't know whether or not they'll reveal her this early on. I cuz I think in some ways it doesn't make sense. Mm. The the big driving mystery of the show is Whistledown. And if if they get rid of that, you you think that He'll find out about it, but other people won't yet. That's yes. what you were saying last time. Yes. I don't know if that's true. I think it would be an effective way to open his eyes to the possibility. Maybe. Because before now, he's just like, oh, you're such a good friend. You're, you're like my little sister, blah, 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 blah. You know, it could be something as simple as he catches her leaving the house looking very un-Penelope-like in, in her um common address and stuff and he's like okay and he just follows her i think that would be enough to then he he then goes what's going on here or maybe he comes across penelope and eloise arguing about it Mm. i don't know we we know what eloise is like she's quite loud (laughs) when, when, when she gets angry yeah so she could just like rant about it and colin could be there i think that would be a little bit actually a bit of a crap way for him to find out, really, mm. but you know, p- perhaps. See, I am on the other end of things. I don't want that to happen. I want there to be a man who's interested in her and wants to marry her. That's what I want. I want there to be some very eligible bachelor that's super into her and it's making her the talk of the town. And I, I don't necessarily think she's going to be the diamond of the season, but. I want it to be that maybe he's the most eligible guy and really wants her. And that drives Colin crazy. Okay, now, okay, you've just you made me think of something really interesting. Okay. If Penelope becomes the talk of the ton, then how is she going to do whistle down when she's under so much scrutiny? When she is the drama. <gasps> I didn't think about that. Because she won't be able to. The whole reason that she has been able to write the papers is because she's been in the background and people just ignore her. You are so right. I don't know. Because That if, will be really fun. Because if she's, if she's in the limelight, she can't go around listening on people's conversations yeah. like we saw at, towards the end of the season because people would be paying attention to her for once. And so particularly, as you say, if there's some super eligible bachelor that's focused on her because then everyone's going to be watching him and then her by extension. Do you know what? Do you know what? Okay, that happens. Let's say that happens. Then she comes to Eloise and she's like, look, this has happened. I'm really sorry for what happened Lady Whistledown. I want to employ you and you are now going to be... She doesn't necessarily have to be Lady Whistledown but they team up. That's that's clever because then... That gets Eloise back on her side. Yes. And, and, you know what that does? That elongates the drama between the Queen and Eloise. Yes. Because then at that point, Eloise already has a a, a problem, which is (laughs) my best friend, ex-friend, whatever, is whistled down and the Queen really wants to know. However, 
the way to up the ante there is to get Eloise involved with the papers because then the Queen's going to be even more irate when she finds out. I am all here for this, and I think I think you're I think I think the thing we have come up together with just now is what's going to happen, and we have no one to bet against us with. But yes, let's put money on it. Okay, let's let's, <laughs> um, let's put fake money on it because okay. I genuinely don't gamble and therefore don't know how any of that works <laughs> um yeah I, I think i think that's a fairly plausible yep i think we're smart i think they should hire method. us for the next seasons well i mean they're already filming season three so that would be a bit of a shame you know what whatever they, one day yeah one day they're gonna listen to this podcast <laughs> <laughs> i highly doubt that but that would be amusing okay so we have been talking for an hour already. However, I do want us to dive into the history moment. Wait, before we do that, last thing, how would we rate this season overall? One to five. One to five. Um, I would give it a four because I think that it was better than season one. But there were certain aspects that could have perhaps been slightly tighter. Mm. I think they improved upon the format, the the the, yes. the style that they had in in season one. There were slightly fewer um, issues with like stereotypes in this season. Yeah, it felt less cheesy. Yeah, this time like, around. Yeah, like um, you know the complaints that we had about the go to the poor part of London and it happens yes. to be raining. There was less of those. There, yeah. There was less of those. Yeah. Um, I, because I think that it was drug out a bit because they needed eight, eight episodes because the season before was eight episodes, I'm going to give it a 3.8. I don't think it's as... I'm sorry, what? A 3.8? Oh, yeah, like, it was good, but not, you know. No, no, no. I, I, three is fine. Like, 0.8? Well, yeah, because I want, I don't, it's, it's high up there it's a high it's a high three but it's not quite a four so just it has a couple points knocked down because of those episodes well that's fine but i thought we were working on a five point scale <laughs> um and suddenly we've gone to a hundred point scale with point eight and then sometimes probably eight point five <laughs> you know eight five three so anywho no the I think, history moment yeah I, I think that's i think that's fair though 3.8 like yeah bring it down a little bit because you thought it was dragged out a little bit yeah so yeah that's fair so i'm really excited about this history moment me too yeah um because I, I i totally know what's coming <laughs> so i was thinking about because there was so much drama happening with this episode i was thinking about well oh my goodness what historical moment could i really talk about because it was so this episode was so Bridgerton centric. Yeah, it was it was and, character focused. Yeah, very character focused. So it was like, what historical moments really? Because we've talked about balls and things in London and oh, be quiet. Um, we we've talked about loads of different assets, hunting and things like that. Um, Palm Mall. The Palm Mall, but this episode didn't really have a lot of historical things to it. And then I was like, aha! But yes, it does. So this episode is where the whole scam between Jack and Lady Featherington falls apart. And I was like, oh, what? I wonder about scams in the Regency era. They must have been rife with them because the laws were so different and 
you know, well, the information was so scarce. Information was so scarce. You could practically change your identity so easily back then. By walking 20 miles down the road yeah. and putting a hat on. Right. And no one would know. So, <laughs> yeah. So I just imagine like scams were everywhere. So uh, I wanted to look into that. Like what was Regent Sierra scams like? And I came across one particular fascinating scam, which was called the Poyas scam. I'm not certain that that's how that would be pronounced. Poyais. Poyais. I mean, really, honestly, it it doesn't matter because it's made up. So there were a number of scams just like Jack's that duped people during the the Regency period, especially since they didn't have uh, the technology that they have today to track down criminals and there were no paper trails back then. So this is one of the wildest stories I've heard of um, back in the Regency era. So it's called the Poyas scheme. And if that's wrong, I'm sorry. So P-O-Y-A-I-S. Yes. Uh, probably French based, right? Maybe. S is probably silent, but we don't know. Yeah. So let's go. Um, so it was created by a Scottish sailor and adventurer named Gregor McGregor. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Boaty McBoatface. <laughs> yeah. Um, in 1817, who discovered the country of Poyas, a Central American country, which he somehow managed to conquer and become the leader of. And then he returned to London to tell everyone that he was the prince of Poyas. The Kazakh, his serene highness Gregor, and that everyone in, everyone should invest in the development of his new country. The only problem was Poyas did not exist. That's so funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Gregor McGregor was born in 1786. He was the son of an East India Company sea captain in Scotland. He served in the British Army at the beginning of the outbreak of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, where he swift was swiftly promoted to lieutenant after a year of service. Point of order, he would have been a lieutenant because he was British. What did I say? You said lieutenant. What? Ever. Okay. He secured his wealth after marrying the daughter of a Royal Navy Admiral, Maria Mar- Maria? <laughs> Maria? <laughs> Maria Bowwater in 1805. This allowed him to buy the rank of captain, which otherwise would have taken about seven years to get there. Well, didn't we talk about purchasing commissions in a yeah. in an episode yeah, previous? Yeah, in one of the episodes. So it's, it's very similar to that. Yeah. So after disputes from other military members, he requested a discharge from the army and retired in 1810 when he moved back home to Edinburgh. With all of this free time, he needed to figure out how to make money. And he tried this by networking. And apparently that didn't work. His (laughs) MLM failed him. (laughs) Um, People found him obnoxious and a brown noser. So this was made worse when his wife died, which left him in a precarious financial state. And because of how many bridges he burned in the British Army, he knew it would be difficult to find another heiress. Interesting. Yeah, I don't... That was one of the things I didn't really dive into, but apparently when this wife died, it left him penniless, which doesn't make sense. Wouldn't the money wouldn't no, the money not, be still be his? No, not necessarily, because her father could have been financing them, but not actually have given them money. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, because that, that, that happened in Persuasion as well. Mr. Elliot, um, when his first wife died, who had a lot of money, he then was left with no money. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. Surely. Yeah, because it'll have been family money. Yeah, don't you it... get a dowry? You got a dowry. 
So okay, yeah, but that's that is slightly different from having the family fortune. I wonder if unless you have a kid, it's not solidified or something like all the money would have gone mm. to the child, basically. And so you would have still been over the money. But I don't know. I, I don't. That's I something it, I should. I it depends on the marriage contract, right? Yeah, it's something we should chat with Charlotte about. We're going to have her on the show at, at some point. And we, we should chat to her about on the show, on the podcast. We're going to have her on the podcast. We, I, I have a feeling she might know about something like that because it, it's I don't know. Yep. Um, but Let's anyways, an actual historian. Yeah. So McGregor's attention turned to Latin America, where he hoped to seek a fortune. He sold his Scottish estate and sailed to Venezuela in April 1812. So he decided to offer his services to a popular general in the Venezuelan army who had heard he'd fought in a famous regiment. So he quickly was given the position of a colonel of a cavalry battalion, despite his fall from grace in the UK. Again, this is where the Internet yeah. would have really helped because yeah. they could have just done a quick google search and exactly. found hey this guy is a bit of a loser <laughs> right so eventually he made it all the way up to commandant general of cavalry and then general of the brigade and eventually general of division in the army of venezuela and new grandia at the ripe old age of 30 it's not gr- grenada so, <laughs> so, so it's a commandant general commandant uh, and new <laughs> Granada. You should have done this history moment. (laughs) Okay. So, I mean, but that is interesting, though, because, yeah, he goes to a foreign nation, is immediately made colonel, which is already pretty high. Right. And then by 30 years old is general of division in the army of Venezuela. That is incredibly high. Right. That's like, I'm fairly sure that would be like a three star general. I don't know, but it was it was super high up there. And they, well, no, I'll get to that. So that allowed him, of course, to secure a new heiress, and this time a Venezuelan one who was the heiress of an important Caracas. Oh, where we're, where we're looking? Caracas family. I don't want to say that wrong. Caracas. Maybe. Yeah, I, it, mm. Sorry. I'm so sorry. Hold on. Yeah, look it up. I'll keep going when you look it up. So as Ward died down by 1820, McGregor clearly got a bit bored and decided to explore the coast of Nicaragua. There he managed to persuade a leader of indigenous people to give him land to create a colony. And this was where the scam of Poyas began. Caracas. Caracas, okay. In 1821, he decided to return to the UK, now a decorated Venezuelan general, who was also apparently the Prince of Poyas, to a country in the Bay of Honduras. While this was a feat indeed, in order to grow his new country, McGregor was going to need new settlers and investors in the UK. So he went around London, Edinburgh, and Glasgow, selling shares uh, to his country, raising £200,000 in one year. I don't know what the equivalent of that is, but that would have been a lot. He also published a big guidebook to the country, which has descriptions of rivers, types of trees, native animals, agriculture, and fully functioning plantations inside this guidebook. So he just like made a bunch of stuff up, like indigenous animals, like he made up names and stuff, which is crazy. Uh, What this guidebook does not really go into is the people who supposedly live there, who they are or what their lives are like, what their professions are. They're just referenced as laborers. So 
shows you that all that really matters is the land and the money that they can make off of it. It doesn't matter if it was someone else's home before. I'm not going to... So, <laughs> such an awful Ooh. colonialist yep, 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 yep. perspective. Oh, God. Okay. okay. Um, so, a bunch of people are investing in this scheme. He even took around 70 people to travel to Poyas in 1822. And to make the scheme even more believable, he gave the travelers the option to change out their money to the Poyas dollar, which, of course, was just fake money he had printed himself. That is an insane amount of dedication it's, to this scheme. It's a it's a level of dedication. It, How much truly. did, you know, taking people on a voyage across the known world. yeah. He must have sunk so much into this. So a second ship embarked for the country with a bunch of settlers hoping to make Poyas their new home, thinking it was a fully fledged country with roads and plantations and sugar mills and steam engines to run these plantations. Mm. Um, instead, they found a mostly wild jungle land with natives who were already established there. And then the passengers from the previous journey who had just been abandoned there. Um, so despite this, some tried to establish a colony with almost no resources. Because that always goes well. Uh, but many of them were already sickly from the journey or became sickly from trying to live in this new world in the, the wilderness that they weren't used to. And almost half of them died. Some survivors escaped to Honduras and just chose to live in Latin America. And then around 50 made it back to London in 1822 with a huge story to tell the press. Surprise, by the time this blew up in the headlines, McGregor was nowhere to be found in the UK. He then went off to, to repeat this scam in France, managing to raise a further £300,000 from new investors who were none the wiser. By the time he put together a ship uh, to drop off this new group of Poyas, to Poyas, however, the authorities heard about the news in the UK and seized his ship and McGregor was tried for fraud in France in 1826. So it only went so far. But the fact that he was able to go over to France and get that much money, all the while the people on the boat, had, the people on the original journey had already come back to the UK. But that's how slow things happened back then. Of course. How it took weeks. <laughs> how long it took. Um, however, in a move that still happens today, McGregor got the last laugh because he was acquitted and one of his associates was found guilty instead. So he never paid for his crimes. Um, if you can believe it, for the next 10 years, he kept trying to scam people with similar stories of Poyas, but on a smaller scale. He then returned to Venezuela in 1838, where he was celebrated as a military hero. He died in 1845 and was buried with military honors. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, and, and apparently they can, I don't know if they still celebrate him today, but I they have like monuments and stuff for him. So he's seen in a different light down there, which is, um, it's really interesting. Um, so yeah, while I think social media can be awful in certain ways, when you read stuff like this, like, yeah, obviously people can still be duped today. There's so much easier ways to verify scams to where they can't get off the ground in as big of a fashion like like this like it this was on such a grand scale really interesting looking that up and finding out about that because i mean obviously a scam like that would never take off today because we know of all the countries that exist and, and things like that but 
Mm -hmm. um, it was just interesting to see how they could get away with something like that at the time because you were so in the dark about all sorts of information. And so if somebody came to you and said, look, there's this country that I have been able to commandeer, basically, do you want to move there? How would you know? You, you wouldn't know whether or not it existed, you know? So... Yeah, but it does tell you a lot about the time if you were just like, I don't care who lives there, I'll invest. Yeah, I mean, he, he was presenting it as this fertile, unsoiled land, so mm. you can't really blame them too much. The blame rests on him. So I looked up his final rank, a division general or general division. Um, it's, it's based on the French system mm. um, as opposed to the British. It is essentially basically the same as a major general that is the commonwealth in the united states um you would be in command of a division which is where the other name comes from consisting of around six thousand to twenty five thousand troops so it is a two-star rank in the commonwealth system however when you look at the insignia used for the general division or however they would say it um, some of the ranks would have three stars, which is what I originally thought, or uh, the Honduras army, which had five stars. Very nice wow. for the Hondurans um, to be a, a division general. Mm. So, as we say, that is that is quite a. It, so it's a junior general rank in in some sense, but that is still incredibly hard to mm. get to by the age of thirty. Yeah. I mean, really? Yeah. That is incredible. So, And then having so much, having such a bad reputation in the UK and being able to completely turn it around for himself in Venezuela, it's, um, it's really interesting. I mean, in, in the very least, like, obviously this guy was a crook, but it sounds like the great a great plot for a film. I don't know why this hasn't been made into like a miniseries or something really fun. I, I could definitely see that. One of those like adventure uh, period dramas, you know? Yeah. So yeah. interesting. Yeah. But we've wrapped up season two of Bridgerton. Thank you for everyone who has listened to the podcast, kept listening, even though it's months and months behind the show coming out. Thank you for your patience. Life gets in the way. Um, but we're glad you're still listening along with us. Mm -hmm. And I'll do a brief uh, brief wrap up here. So after every episode, I do like a really brief suggestion of a period drama of some sort, whether it's a show, a book, a movie, a game, something that we've seen or read that we think is interesting, period drama related. Um, so for this final episode, I am going to suggest the show Hotel Portofina. So if you're a fan of Downton Abbey, the Hotel Port then Hotel Portofino is for you. It's about a hotel in Italy right on the brink of World War II where an English family is trying to keep afloat their gorgeous hotel by the seaside. It's an ensemble cast, uh, kind of like Downton Abbey, but it's smaller production don't don't expect the grandeur of of Down, Downton Abbey, but it's got kind of the same level of of intrigue and love triangles between the staff and the family. Um, the scenery is gorgeous in the show, and it's perfect summer watch by the beach. So it'll it'll totally make you want to go to Italy for sure, take a vacation by the sea. So um, yeah, that's our suggestion for this episode. It's on PBS. It's on PBS right now and BritBox. So definitely recommend you checking that out we really enjoyed it mm -hmm. content warning for fascists though they obviously italy 
prior to World War Two, there are literal fascists in power. And so if that's not something that you're interested in... It's just... a historical lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it's interesting because both, both Downton Abbey and Hotel Portofino deal with these real world issues mm. in the 1900s that were massive. Yeah. Massive world shaking things. And yet the stories are so personal to the characters mm. as well that it, it's, I think it's a really good mix between the characters' stories and the larger worldwide story. So, yeah, we, we really enjoyed it um, yeah. overall. And it's much brighter than Downton Abbey. Yeah, it's, it's quite bright. because it's bright. in the sun. Yeah, <laughs> quite bright and sunny. Um, and it does have some really like beautiful, fun moments. So Oh, yeah, of course. And yeah. lots of uh, really interesting characters as well. In terms of that ensemble cast... It was a real host of characters. Yeah. 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 Really cute. So, yeah, like I said before, now that the season is done, we will be periodically uploading episodes to do with other period dramas in between the seasons of Bridgerton. Sporadically. Did I say periodically again? Yes. We're going to sporadically be uploading episodes about other period dramas in between the seasons of Bridgerton. We also have a bit of a backlog of some episodes, some special episodes talking about historical parts of Bridgerton. It just takes a while to to upload and edit and get them up. So we we will be getting those out though, and we we do have some interviews that we've recorded that we just haven't been able to to edit and put together yet. But be on the lookout for those, and please stay subscribed to the to the podcast. Yeah, those those interviews that we did really cool. Um, excited for people to listen to those sometimes i forget that people haven't yet but yeah thanks so much for listening to this episode in august september you know what we've we've tried our best i don't know how to end this how about we end it with until next time (laughs) (laughs) You know because... what? We'll sing an original no, let's not. Bridgerton song. No, let's not. I'll pick one of the songs. Are you ready for it? Uh, no. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. I'm so scared. <laughs> What's happening?